Welcome back, everyone. There's nothing better than God's word, so let's get started again in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here we have another run-in with the Pharisees. Jesus' disciples picked heads of grain, rubbed them together, and ate them. God allowed people to eat from their neighbor's yard— you can see in Deuteronomy 23-25, so this was not an issue of theft. The issue in the eyes of the Pharisees was that they were doing it on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, which was Saturday, was a day that was separated for the Israelites to worship God. Israel was not to do any labor, but to dedicate that day to rest and worship. Sabbath reflects how God worked and then rested in creation. The Israelites were to do the same, work the week and then rest. A curious twist, now we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because Christ died on the cross for our sins when we could do nothing. He gave us His grace and salvation. We work to glorify Him out of gratitude, not for salvation. As we see throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees interpreted the law too strictly. They leaned on the legalistic side, so so much so that they enforced harsher rules for fear of getting close to breaking the original rules. The Pharisees considered that rubbing heads of grain together was, in a smaller sense, the same as working a field. <clears throat> Jesus responded to the Pharisees with the Bible. He told them about David in 1 Samuel 21, 1-9. David was running for his life from Saul, the king of Israel. David approached the priest asking for food, and the priest gave him consecrated bread that was usually meant only for the priests. Exodus 25, verses 23-30, and Leviticus 24, 5-9. No one would argue against this. David was God's anointed. He was a big deal. His lineage would bring the Messiah. Jesus showed that David was allowed an exception because of the special circumstances and the priest's blessing. David was being chased by Saul for being God's chosen. Can you see the parallels? Jesus and his disciples had permission to be above the legalistic man-made law from Jesus, who was God's anointed one. He was God. He made the he made the laws. He made the days. Like David, Jesus was being persecuted by those who feared him. You can see the parallels. Verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. There was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around them, after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. 
and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Can you tell Luke has a theme here? On yet another Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue and he saw a man with a withered hand. The Pharisees saw this and were waiting for a chance to pounce. Jesus was a threat to them and they didn't like him. If he healed, they would accuse him of working on the Sabbath and of being unholy. But as we saw before, the Jews were simply called not to work. Again, an exception was made for doing good. Knowing the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus called the men over and posed a question. Is it right to do right or to refuse to do right and do wrong on the Sabbath? No one answered, so God showed them. To avoid doing right is to do wrong. He showed himself again as Lord over the Sabbath. The man was healed instantly by Jesus' words, and the Pharisees, unfortunately, were seething with fury at the good that was done. This could have been because it was against their plans, or perhaps they felt humiliated. Either way, they closed their eyes to the Messiah and began to plot a way to get rid of Jesus. Why is this important? This is a call to be vigilant. Man-made laws can be good. At the same time, we are called to follow the Bible and its commands above all the other laws. So when a man-made law and the Bible come into conflict, the Bible should always win. Verses 12 through 16. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. It seems like after the Sabbath discussion with the Pharisees, Jesus took his leave to rest and pray before God all night. The next day, Jesus chose 12 disciples from the masses to be his trainees, disciples, or followers, and apostles, which means sent out messengers. Okay, why is this important? Jesus shows us the incredible importance of prayer here. He spent the whole night praying before making a final decision on who would be chosen to follow him throughout his years teaching and afterward. Prayer needs to be our first step as well, not a backup plan for when we have already exhausted all our other options. Just to clarify names, Bartholomew is Nathaniel, Matthew is Levi, and Judas is Thaddeus. He chose these knowing the scriptures said that one would betray him and the rest would abandon him. It is interesting that God does nothing without a purpose. He chose twelve men for his work and also chose twelve tribes to begin the work of the law. A new work was developing. Verses 17 to 19. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him, and all and healing them all. Here Luke seems to record a shorter version of the Sermon of the Mount. Though 
some believe it is another occasion, calling it the Sermon on the Plain. It could be either, given that we do not have every second of Jesus' three years of ministry recorded. Luke records the event from verses 17 to verse 49. In Matthew, it spans from chapter 5 through chapter 7. So it seems like Luke was trying to reach Gentiles, so he omitted the most the more Jewish parts that interpreted the law. Some have an issue with it being the same event since Luke, the word, says Jesus stood in the plain, while Matthew says he was on a mountainside. If this is the same event, Jesus most probably stood in a level plain while he healed and casted out demons, but went up to a mountainside when he was ready to teach. Matthew 5, 1 is the one that shows that. To use his acoustics uh, to project his voice. Multitudes came from many places to, to, be, to listen to him and to be healed. It is important to note that no one goes to heaven by following the Sermon on the Mount. It's a good teaching and one that Christians should follow. But Jesus' sacrifice is the only thing that can save sinners, like all of us. This is simply a teaching on life and how best to live it according to God and for His glory. Verses 20 to 23. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Okay, let's break this down. Blessed is the translation of the Greek word makarioi, a very common word in Luke and Matthew. Most of its uses are actually found in these two books. Originally, its meaning conveyed a sense of happiness from the Greek gods over suffering. Later, it came to mean a positive condition of a person. Throughout the word, meaning the Bible, we see that the truly happy person is the one who trusts, waits for, fears, and loves God. Deuteronomy 33, to 20, uh, 33 verse 29 and Psalm 84, 12. This is considered the Beatitude section of the sermon. Beatitude means be this attitude. <laughs> Pretty simple, huh? They take what is a bad situation on earth and deepen it to something that can honor God. Now, another important note here is that these are not requirements for salvation. These are blessings for believers. How do we know this? First, the teaching is addressed to the disciples who were believers. Second, in verse 22, there is blessing for being persecuted for the Son of Man. There was no one that I know that would allow themselves to be persecuted for something they do not believe. So, this is clearly directed at believers. Does blessed are you who are poor mean that we need to be beggars? No. In his telling, Matthew includes the words in spirit, which can be applied within context to this verse. The poor in spirit are humble. Humility is the hardest step for many trying to enter the narrow gate of salvation, because this means they must kill their pride. The humble are the only ones God can save, Isaiah 57, 15, 1 Peter 5, 6. 
Also, we can note that those who followed Jesus were actually poor. They left everything to follow him. In either situation, if you are poor and saved, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are you who hunger expresses much the same concept. We do not need to be physically hungry to be good Christians, but if we are, there is hope in heaven where we will be satisfied. Our hunger needs to come in the form of a desire to know God and fall more in love with Him. Blessed are you who weep, you will be comforted. One day, the tears we weep will be wiped away by the one who died to make all things right. What an amazing comfort. The final beatitude Luke includes is, Blessed are you when men hate you for the sake of the Son of Man. This is not when we are made fun of for having funny glasses. It's solely when we are hated for loving and following Christ. Although we are called to seek peace with all, from Romans 12.18, there will come a point where people will hate us for our belief in the truth. In following Christ, we are going completely against the current of the world. But in this persecution, we can be joyful because our reward will be in heaven. Not only that, but we are following the example of God's very own prophets who were also hated and often killed for obeying God. Why is all this important? What's something we can take away from this? Life can be difficult, absolutely. Where is your hope during those times? Where is your peace? If it is in this world or its temporary things, you will be depressed for the rest of your life because this world does not satisfy. How mistaken we are when we feel like material blessings will bring us joy. Money, possessions, positions, pleasure, popularity, they can never bring true, lasting happiness. That is solely God's department. He made a way for us to be satisfied and happy, and that is only in Him. This is, again, a demonstration of the great reversal of the kingdom of God. 24 to 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you. When all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. We continue with some tough verses. Jesus speaks of woes or or misery uh, for different people. Uh, Woes was kind of like a condemnation. It was kind of the opposite of the Beatitude. Um, These are the opposites of the Beatitudes. So we can derive the meanings of woes from the Beatitudes. The disciples and others had given up everything to follow Jesus, but some would refuse to follow him. Among those would be those that were rich, they were arrogant or dishonest, and we can see that in Proverbs 28, 11, uh, who instead of receiving the kingdom of God, like the poor, would receive their full comfort in this fleeting life. Those that do not seek God, who do not hunger after him, would one day desire him, but remain hungry. Some would laugh now, but weep later. Some will seek fame and comfort now, only to miss the eternal blessing. These place temporal things as their gods and would replace them. For this, they will be cursed eternally. They choose to ignore the gravity of eternity now, preferring to live pretty much enveloped in their own world. Many choose the finite comforts 
that are available in this world over Christ. They will receive their curse for rejecting the Son of God. And just in case, please note, and, and we'll get into this as we dive into various doctrines and, and various teachings, there's nothing wrong with comfort, but there is something wrong with seeking to be satisfied in them rather than in Christ. Seeking these things more than seeking Christ or placing any of these things as more important than any other person, that's wrong. Why? Because only God is worthy of our praise and honor. It is loving the gift more than the gift giver. Don't live for this world. It is fleeting and will end. We are called to love God and to love others. This glorify God, which is the calling that will satisfy us here and for eternity. Verses 27 to 30. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Wow. What a section. Jesus truly was amazing with his words and his application. We are given many ways to treat others in this section, but we can see a thread that holds it all together. Love. All of these actions are not done naturally by man, but when we have Jesus within us, they are doable. We receive the ability to be truly righteous. The first part is extremely difficult. Love your enemies, those that hate, curse, and mistreat you. What an honor it is to have the opportunity to act like our Savior. Jesus was hated by many, yet he died for all. We are called to fight hatred with love. This includes all groups and people that are against the Bible and its teachings. Let me say it another way. We are called never to hate any person. We may hate sin, we're supposed to hate sin, which is offensive to God and His holiness, but we must love the person and desire the best for them. We bless them, we pray for them, and we love them without condoning their sin. Notice, this love is not necessarily full of emotion. This is basically a denial of your emotions and choosing to love those that hate you despite how you might feel. The command here is not to wait until we feel love, but to decide to choose to love. An application of this that certainly does not come naturally to us is to do good to those that mistreat us. The Bible not only says do not retaliate, but do good to someone that is knowingly hurting you. They will not be able to understand it. Why bother? Because love saved some of God's enemies, like you and me, right? 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Treat others like you would like to be treated. So before you condemn or judge someone, place yourself in their shoes. Before you act, consider how you would like to be treated in the same circumstance. This is not dependent on your behavior of the other person, uh, but on the Christian's love that is copying God's love toward us. This love is unique to the Christians. No other worldview calls for this. All other worldviews call followers to abstain from hurting others. But Christianity calls for us to actively love others, even when they are hateful towards us. 
verses 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus clarifies the love that He is calling us to have in this passage. Loving our enemies and all those around us is not limited to simply not reacting in kind when they do something wrong to us. Instead, we are called to actively do good to them. We are even called to do good and not expect anything in return from that love. Instead, we can expect a reward from God for our love, which is a much better reward. Why is this important? Why do this at all? Because it is proof that we are God's. We act as God acts. It is very easy to be loving to a kind person, even unsaved people do this, but true love does not know bounds. So to love an enemy marks how distinct we are from the world. Others can do the easy stuff, loved, um, love when they are loved, but we are called to love even when we are wronged, when we do not feel like it, when we are mistreated and hurt. It reminds me of the verse where it says that, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and we love him because he first loved us. So we're reflecting Christ's love toward us when we choose to love others, even when they're not loving us. Now, will our enemies never get judged for their wrongdoing? Well, we can leave that in God's hand. You are not judge or jury to be deciding that, and that is where the next section goes. 37 to 38. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Be merciful. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Do pardon. All of these things have to do with relationships. If forgiven, if forgiveness can be given, give it. Uh, let love cover sin when it's possible. And we see this in 1 Peter 4, 8. Now, let me clarify something. When it says to not judge, it is not saying we should accept everyone's sin without processing it. The Bible in other places encourages to judge. In the courts, for example, Romans 13, in the process of church discipline where one Christian is being judged for their sin within the church, and also on a personal level, and we'll talk about that more below. We are called to stop finding fault in other people, to stop nitpicking others' entire lives. We are called to stop gossiping about those failures and flaws. We are called to stop assuming we know the entire story behind someone's actions. Instead, where things are unclear, and when we can, we simply forgive. We see here that you reap what you sow. If you plant judgment, you will receive judgment. If you condemn, you will be condemned. 
If it is not an outright sin, learn to forgive. God will deal with that person in his time, not yours. If it is an outright sin, there is a process given by God to confront that. And you can read that in the counseling section, and we'll talk about it when we talk about spiritual warfare as well. The image here is as we give to others, God will give much more to us. Please note two important things. First, God's reward to us may come in this lifetime, and it may not. And second, we should not give to get. God will give in his time, and we give because we love. Verses 39 to 42. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the, out the speck that is in your brother's eye. When we judge, we cannot lead someone if we ourselves are trapped in the same trap. For example, if I'm a bank robber, I can't condemn you for stealing an eraser. That is pure hypocrisy. When people do that, and they do, it is like the blind leading the blind, or the student saying he is superior to the teacher. It's plain and simple silliness. Jesus also describes a person with a big log in their eye trying to take out a tiny splinter from another's eye. It's ridiculous. Before you accuse anyone of anything, you need to check your heart. We are often, at least in part, to blame for conflicts, even in very small ways. It takes two to tango. We are called to remove our sin before we even consider another's sin. Sometimes it is necessary to talk to others about their sin. We are simply called to clean our hearts before God first. We are called to warn fellow Christians of sin and gently and lovingly bring them back to God. The goal is always reconciliation, but we cannot be hypocritical in the process. Are we called to judge? Yes and no. We can judge after we get the plank out of our eye. We cannot accuse others of sin when we are struggling with the same sin, and we cannot judge motives. We can judge, but most of the time, especially with the unsaved, we are called to love instead. 43 to 45. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar brush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Our actions are very much an indication of what is in our hearts. By our actions, people will know who we are. He gives an awesome example. Good trees can only give good fruit, and bad trees only bad. We cannot get apples from a thorn bush. It is not going to happen. In the same way, our hearts can only produce what is in them. We speak 
from what is in our hearts. Believers do sin, but they are becoming more holy, more like Christ every day. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we? And why is this important? While some may give excuses for their sinful behavior, the Bible tells us plainly, this is what was in their heart and in our hearts when we sin. We must fill our hearts with the fruit we want to see because our hearts can only give what they are filled with. Verses 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the the ruin of that house was great. We see here, God describes the hypocritical side of many in this final portion of chapter 6. Many call him Lord of their lives, but they only hear and do not act. They do not allow Jesus to change their lives. To illustrate, Jesus describes one man who truly hears God's words and acts on them as a man who builds a good foundation, salvation, and then builds a house on it. The foundation is like the person's salvation through faith in Christ. The building of the house is representative of that person's obedience to God. Temptations, trials, and circumstances of life come, and the house does not budge. But there's another that simply makes the house with no foundation, a person who only goes through the motions of obedience. There is no real change of heart, simply an obedience that does not want to get in trouble and likes doing the right thing to look good in front of others. When all the same trouble comes to this person, he is destroyed. All his outward deeds are useless. So what can we learn from this? It's not enough to simply call Jesus Lord. Even the demons believe and tremble. We must trust him and do what he says from the very foundations of who we are. We must be saved and then allow God to change our hearts however he pleases. If we are not saved by faith through grace, we do not have salvation. We cannot depend on ourselves for salvation, but solely on God. After this, we can work empowered by God for his glory to obey him in all that we do. How is your house coming along? Where and how are you building? Thanks for joining us. That finishes up chapter 6.